pro-life movement called Love Life Charlotte. Um, and I'm currently serving as a local church rep and I help to facilitate the prayer walks. I just wanna know by show of hands, how many of you have not heard of Love Life Charlotte? Not, okay, great, um, thank you. And um, how many, and those that have, how many of you have connected or come out to a prayer walk or um, participated in some way, shape or form, thank you. Today I just want to um, tell you what Love Life is, what God has been doing, and ways to connect in a brief uh, snapshot. Uh, we as Hickory Grove are, par are partners and we will have the opportunity to um, unite in prayer church-wide during the um, Operation Charlotte season, but we don't have to wait. Um, until then, there's so much work to be done. What Love Life is, it is a 40-week journey of hope of prayer walks, 40 weeks represent the full-term baby that's being born. Um, the vision is to unite and to mobilize the church, to create a culture of love and life, to bring an end to abortion and to the orphan crisis. And in order to create a change in our, our culture, it's going to take the church to rise up and do that. Uh, we are seeing God move in so many ways. He has given Love Life land right next door to the abortion center, call center. So we are right there um, every Saturday, time of praise, prayer, and um, we hear the tragic truth about abortion, and we're um, encouraged to connect. Um, 13 babies have been saved. Uh, mothers have chose, chosen life for them just last the, the last two weeks, and then last week, 15. So we're already up to about 27. And amen, amen. Praise God for that. Um, and that's because the church is showing up. Um, Love Life is partnering with Cities for Life. I know that Aaron is a part of that great ministry. They've been out on the sidewalks. And um, the RV ministry, the Help Pregnancy Center, together, we, the body of church, have seen abortions down on Wednesdays where there's prayer and fasting, and on Saturdays when the church shows up. Um, um, there are... 400 um, aborted babies in North Carolina alone. In North Carolina alone, about 200 right there at in Charlotte, 20 minutes away from us, um, and the church has to show up. Abortion is the leading cause of death. It is the number one moral issue of our day, I believe, um, and I, I think trafficking will be right next to that. Um, Charlotte has the largest um, amounts of babies being killed. So if the church does not do anything, how can we change the culture? Um, Second Chronicles 7 to 14, if my people will, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek his face and seeking, seek out how we can help and repent and turn from our own ways, um, how we've been um, silent over the issue for so many years, asking God how we can play a part in this um, mission to save lives and to um, these women to hear the gospel. Um, I just want to briefly, um, if you don't know, we meet on Saturdays for prayer walks. That's how we unify the church in prayer. Prayer walks are 9 to 11 a.m. I can give you the address if you would like that. Um, we worship, we hear the word, um, and there's testimony and prayer. Um, there are several ways to connect, and that's what you would hear when you go out. There's prayer walk champion. That's, those are the folks that are there that make this happen on Saturdays. I participate in that. So many things you can do. We're in need of security. If you know any men from 18 years old or, or older that would like to participate in security, please please let them sign up. I'm going to tell you how to do that. There's a prayer walk pioneer. If you'd like to give, uh, 
um, Love Life Charlotte is no, lo no longer just Charlotte. It has expanded to Greensboro and Raleigh, so it's, it's expanding and we're gonna need people to give. You can participate in that. And Frontlines is the Cities for Life, um, counselors that are out there encountering these women, ministering to them, and mentoring is a big part of this. That's the most unique part of um, Love Life Charlotte where they provide mentors for these women. They're rewarded and they get, get a way of escape, someone to walk through life with them and then often care. Um, seek to adopt and foster a child in our community. There are over 2,000 local children orphans, and um, they're ready, they're ready. Um, and then there's another piece called the restored life. One out of four women have had an abortion or know someone who has participated in having an abortion. We now have a ministry included called Restored Life where you can attend a Bible study. Um, there's also online resources for you or a friend that you know. I just wanna take the time to highlight mentoring to back it up. They've done, there's a big change this year within Love Life um, where they're localizing mentorship the mentorship part of it, um, and that is to create accountability and accessibility to the mentor and the mentee so that they're in your community, they're accountable to your church and your pastor. We are partners. Uh, we're working on this to become um, something that we can do here. I would love to have at least five people that want to hear more about that. Just come see me today. Give me your name. I can get in touch with you on how to move into that um, because how it works is Cities for Life will encounter the woman. She will, if she chooses life or if she's interested in getting a free ultrasound, she will be escorted to the Help Pregnancy Center RV. On the RV, she will receive, um, uh, she will meet her baby for the first time. The abortion clinic will not do that. She will meet her baby for the first time and 90% of those women choose life for their, their babies when they meet her or him. And then she will be presented the gospel Jesus Christ, and then Love Life will call the local partner church in her area and seek out a mentor. And they will call me, they will call me, excuse me. They will call Burdell, because I'm the church rep. I would love to have at least five women. I'm one of them, I'll, I will step up to the plate, but I would love to have at least five women that, would, that are interested in finding out more. We can start with your interests. If they call, I would love us to run to the scene and, and walk these women through, and if they and, and we can lead them through the adoption process as well, and the forced care process. We're working on ways to develop um, a community in our local churches to become houses of refuge, because we're the ones that's going to change the culture. So, um, last thing I'm going to say is, um, please download the app. They have an app, and it is wonderful. It's called. If you have an iPhone, it's Love Life. Um, your Play Store, you go to Love Life Charlotte, uh, excuse me, iPhone would be Love Life USA. Android would be um, Love Life Charlotte. And on there, you can register for any of these things. You can find out a wealth of information. You can learn how to um, present the gospel to folks, um, excuse me, to, um, to fight against the pro-life movement. Um, in a two-minute session, they'll teach you how to do that. Um, Restored Life is on there if you know anyone who has had an abortion and um, obviously they want to be discreet. You, that can lead them to a Bible study um, and it also has training and healing manuals online. Um, so please download the app so that you can get all that information at your fingertips. And if you have any questions, please see me. Thank you for this time and let's rise up. Um, and some, we all can do something. So whatever that is, seek God for what that is so we can help 
um, these um, families in our communities and, um, and pray that God will heal our land. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Um, let's pray about that right now. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you. I thank you for um, this time to come together. I thank you for Bridell and her passion. I thank you that she's brought this to our attention. Help us not to treat it as a trivial and small thing. And Lord, I pray that you will raise up those five women that she's uh, seeking out. I pray that you'll lay it on their hearts and draw them to you and that they will be obedient. And now, Lord, as we open your word, will you help us to understand it and obey it? In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. <coughs> Bridell, thank you. Women, thank you for the lovely music. It was right on spot for what we'll be talking about. I also want to thank Tricia Scribner for filling in for me last week. I am so grateful for her help. It was called the best prayer ever. In fact, if you Google that phrase, you will find this story. It is about the pre-race prayer that Pastor Joe Nelms, a Baptist preacher from Tennessee, gave before a NASCAR race approximately seven years ago. In it, he prays, he's got his very big preacher voice, and he prayed this. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for all your blessings, for these mighty machines that you have brought for us. Thank you for the Dodges and the Toyotas, for the Fords, and we thank you for Roosh and Yates partnering to give us the power that we see before us. Thank you for Sunoco Racing Fuel and Goodyear Tires and bring performance and power to the track. Now, at this point, the audience is looking uncomfortable. They're not quite sure what to make of him. And then he says this, Lord, I want to thank you for my smoking hot wife tonight. And at that, the audience erupted into laughter and applause. Apparently, that is a line from Talladega Nights, which he said he had watched several nights earlier and got the idea. And then he continued, Lord, I pray you bless the drivers and use them tonight. May they put on a performance worthy of this great track. In Jesus' name, boogity, 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 amen. And with that, the crowd goes crazy. And the prayer became an instant viral sensation. It was talked about or written about on most all of the major news outlets, and the consensus was it was the best prayer ever. It put the fun back in fundamentalism. The watching world loved it. In an interview afterward, he said he didn't want to do a cookie-cutter prayer. Quote, I want to get somebody's attention to try to make an impact on the fans and give them something they'll remember, and maybe they'll go home on a Saturday night and say, maybe I ought to get up and go to church this morning. As you might imagine, not all of the feedback was positive. Some said his prayer was disrespectful and disgraceful. But Pastor Nelms dismissed the criticism 
said he wasn't taking the criticism to heart. He said the prayer was not really for Christian audiences. He was trying more to reach out to the unsaved and to those turned off by church. This morning, let's ponder what the Apostle James might have had to say about it all. Would he call it the best prayer ever? It did get a lot of attention, but were those listeners and viewers getting to see genuine Christianity? Is it okay to mix funny lines from movies in your prayer if it's going to get someone's attention? And will that kind of attention actually lead to the change of a heart? And then there is the whole matter of what if that pastor is wrong? What if he is off track, no pun intended, and somebody confronts him about it? Would it be wrong for someone to do that? And should he just dismiss it and not take it to heart? We have much to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 5? James 5, verse 13. As I am reading, I want you to watch for the expressions, anyone among you and one another. James 5, 13 says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, we'll stop there for now. This is our final morning in the book of James, and we want to do a couple of things. As you know, the book has been laying out for us tests of genuine faith. And so we want to add a couple of things more to that list. And then we also want to talk about one of the most encouraging parts of the book, and that is his teaching on prayer. If you remember, at the beginning of this course, we called him Old Camel Knees. And so we're going to find out what Old Camel Knees has to teach us about prayer. Now, at this point in chapter 5, the part that we just read, teachers will usually point out that James takes on a very strong community focus. You could see it in the, the uh, terms that he's using. There is a definite group mentality in this section. In January, this past January, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York signed and lobbied for and signed the passing of the Reproductive Health Act, which is a horrific law that essentially allows for elective abortion in the state of New York up to the moment of birth. Uh, he had parts of New York City uh, lit up in pink lights to celebrate its passing. Because he is Catholic, he was criticized heavily by some high-ranking members of the Catholic Church. His response was, and I quote, my religion is a private matter, end quote. No, governor, actually it's not. Not if it's real. 
genuine faith is not practiced in private or isolation or independently, but together with other believers. And this is going to be our first point. Number one on your papers, the genuine Christian life is one of community. It's one of community, and that is going to be a key element throughout this whole section. In verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone in your community of faith, is anyone suffering? Is anyone suffering hardship? And that word for suffering is very broad. It's describing all kinds of suffering. What are you to do? You're to pray. You're to pray individually. You're to pray as an intercessor for someone else. You are to pray as a faith community. You are to pray. You are to be in communion with God about that hardship. Are you cheerful? You're to pray too. Here's our next point, number two. Genuine believers should be marked by prayer. The suffering, the cheerful, those are two um, extremes and really everything in between. We are to pray about everything. Everything is always appropriate. It is always available for every situation. We are to be constantly praying. We are to be people of prayer. All right, verse 14 says this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If you write in your Bible, you can write controversial next to this verse because it is typically considered to be the most controversial passage in the book of James. Some say in the whole Bible. On one hand, you have the Catholic Church that uses this as the basis to give last rites to the dying. And then way over here on the other side of the spectrum, you have those that say that God never wants you to be sick. And that if you just have enough faith, every disease is curable. Okay, and, and then everything in between. There are um, a number of different interpretations on this. And even if you read nothing but solid conservative preachers, there's going to be differing views. Now, notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When I was a young mom, uh, and I was living in a different state, and uh, I went to church, and we had a big Wednesday night prayer meeting. And everybody would meet together in the sanctuary, and we would pray together. Well, one night, there was this young, attractive uh, young gal that stood up. Um, you would probably say she kind of had a reputation for being a little quirky. And uh, she stands up, and she says this. My husband has been out of town on business, and I have really been struggling with lust. Can you pray for me? Is that what James means when he says that we are to confess our sins one to another? You can write controversial next to this passage too because it's, it's another controversial verse in this, past, in this passage. Um, does it mean that? Well, uh, I have read um, Henry Blackaby speak about different meetings that he has had where there was just great re repentance and great sorrow over sin, and, and there might be people that um, confess um, 
things like that. Now, in, in my particular instance, it probably would have been more edifying had she gone privately to another woman or to some other women to talk about her struggles. The, the general rule is the more public the sin, then the more public the confession needs to be. Now, in this context, because that's what we want to understand it in context, we said that it has a strong focus on community and one of prayer. So we want to understand it within that. And it's going to help to think back to the teaching of Jesus, because that's what we're doing in James. We always want to think back to what Jesus taught. Now, I have on your verse, um, on your paper, some verses. It is Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 23 says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. All right, now this would be a perfect example of what confession would look like. Okay, um, a brother has something against you so that you go to him, you confess, you agree with him, you make it right. You, you, be, you become reconciled, all right? And um, that brings me to number three on your papers. Genuine believers pursue reconciliation and unity. It's going to be a part of being a unified community. And he's going to expound on why that's so essential. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The NAS says this, the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. We um, have had numerous topics numerous lessons in the past on the topic of prayer. There's probably about five or six different podcasts on the topic. Most of those lessons were uh, based on the teachings of Paul. This morning, we want to take a look at what James has to say and add another layer to what we've talked about when it comes to prayer. Primarily this morning, we want to ask the question, how can we pray more effectively? How can we have a prayer life that accomplishes much? Now, we could also ask that in the negative. We could ask, why are we so ineffective? Why does my prayer life seem to accomplish so little? Ever feel like that? Um, well, James is actually going to address that. So if you would turn with me to James chapter 4. Turn back to James chapter 4. This should sound very familiar. As we read this, I want you to keep in mind that James is going to use the word ask interchangeably with the word pray. Jesus did that too. Um, let's start with James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, James is describing two different problems concerning prayer. Two things that make for ineffective prayer. First, he says you don't have because you don't ask. Your life is not marked by prayer, you are prayerless. When Jen Wilkins, Wilkin teaches this, she points out here that 
prayerlessness, it's indicating their self-reliance. They're not praying because they're living independent, self-reliant lives. Then there's the second problem. There were those that were praying. They were asking, but they were praying selfishly and with wrong motives. Their prayers were self-indulgent. And remember a couple weeks ago, we said that self-reliant, self-indulgent, self-promoting, those were things the world encourages. Those were indicators of worldliness. These folks had a worldliness problem, and it was showing up in their prayer lives. James says, you ask wrongly. You ask with wrong motives. You ask so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And remember we said that word means hedone, so that you may spend it on your hedonism. Um, I want you to think back to the parable of the prodigal son. At the beginning of the story, the son goes to the father and he demands that the father give him his inheritance so that he could spend it on his pleasures and on his passions, which is exactly what he does. James is describing something similar. He says, either you don't pray, or when you do pray, you pray like the prodigal son. You're asking for stuff to spend it on your pleasures. You're asking God to give you more of the world. Your prayers are selfish, and consequently, they are not being answered. Well, that raises the question, what would the opposite of that be? If that's wrong motives, then what would an unselfish prayer be like? Okay, I've got two verses on your paper that are going to help answer that. These, the first are the words of Jesus. He said in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then the second verse comes from 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I would write next to these verses in very big letters, right motives. Right motives, that's what those are. In fact, number four on your papers is this. The right motives for effective prayer will always involve seeking God's will and God's glory. I once had a man sit at my dining room table and say to me, I have never had one single prayer answered. And he was mad. And he pointed his finger and said, in all my years, I've never had one single prayer answered. Well, James would have an answer for that. He would say, if you are not seeing regular answered prayers to specific prayers, it is because either A, you are prayerless, you are self-reliant, maybe you're distracted, but you're not praying, or B, you're praying wrongly. You're not asking God to do the things that God wants to do. Your prayers are selfish, and then there is another explanation that we need to consider, and that would be C, your faith is not real. You are not yet a genuine child of God. Here's our next point. Number five, James says the prayers of a righteous man 
can accomplish much. In fact, I would go back to number two on your papers where we wrote genuine believers should be marked by prayer and I would write the word answered prayer. Genuine believers should be seeing answered prayer because the reality that all religions pray. Muslims will stop what they're doing to pray five times a day. The distinguishing mark of genuine believer, of a genuine believer, is that they are praying and those prayers are accomplishing much. Now that raises a question, how righteous do you have to be to get your prayers answered? Let's define what we mean by that term. I have it on your papers, number six. The Bible gives us two pictures of righteousness. Number one is positional, and number two is practical. If you have trusted Jesus, Christ as Savior, and have been justified, your positional standing is that you have been declared righteous. The practical is going to refer to your walk, your obedient lifestyle, after, after you have been made positionally righteous. Okay, James is explaining that prayer is for the genuine believer, a person in right standing with God who is practicing righteousness. He's practicing it. Is he doing it perfectly? Well, think about the message of James. The message of James is that we need to be progressing, we need to be maturing. Perfection, no. Progression, yes. Okay? So, to be effective in prayer, the person needs to be righteous, in right standing and practice. He needs to be asking and asking with right motives. What else? Let's turn back to chapter 1 in James because he talks about prayer in that chapter 2. Um, James chapter 1, verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, there's our word again, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's our next point, number seven. To pray effectively, we must ask in faith. I recently learned that one of my oldest and dearest friends was in the hospital having severe chest pains. And she was told to expect to need open heart surgery and that it would be the complicated kind. I uh, became very anxious and concerned and so I began to pray for her. Now, I believe with all my heart that God can heal her. What I don't know is I, I don't know God's will. I don't know if he will heal her. <coughs> now, would that be an example of doubting? Would that be an example of me being like the wave of the sea? Should I have demanded that God heal her? Should I 
have gone to the hospital room and commanded in the name of Jesus that sickness to leave her body like they do on TV. Would that have been an example of praying with faith? Would that have been praying more effectively? No, no, no. Not being sure of how God is going to answer does not make you a doubter doesn't make you double-minded. To be double-minded means to be two-souled, okay? Here's our next point. Number eight, the opposite of being double-minded or two-souled is to be wholly committed to God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy committed, that's our faith goal, okay? Single-focused. I once had a friend that came to our neighborhood Bible study and she was a committed Catholic and she was trying to understand my beliefs and I was trying to understand her beliefs and um, she would say that she agreed with me on everything that the Bible had to say about Jesus. But then she would give me this long list of saints that she prayed to and she would say to me, well, it can't hurt. You know, it's just more saints praying. James would have an answer for her. You ought not to expect to receive anything. Now listen, God may be very gracious and answer the prayers of a non-believer. That would be an example of common grace. But the point here that James is making is that the person who is not wholly committed to Jesus must not suppose he will receive anything. The prayer of the holy committed has great power. Now, let's turn back to James chapter 5. Back to James. I guess we never left James, but James chapter 5. Verse 17 says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, James has been giving us wonderful teaching all throughout the book of James on prayer. And then we get to the part where he is going to flesh it all out with the perfect example, the example of Elijah and his prayer life. And in particular, a certain incident that takes place in the Old Testament where he prays that it might not rain. So we want to go back to that passage. I want, to, I want you to see it for yourself. So keep your finger in James because we're coming back. But turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. says this, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, this here is the first mention of Elijah in the Bible. He bursts onto the scene out of nowhere and we're not told anything about him other than he says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. He's telling Ahab, I am in right standing before God. All right, now Ahab, on the other hand, we are told a lot about him. We're told that he was wicked. 
We're told that his father was wicked. We're told that he was involved in all kinds of idolatry and that he did more to provoke God than all the kings of Israel together up into that time. And that sin, get this, and that sin and wickedness had become a trivial thing to him. Sin was trivial. He married the pagan queen Jezebel who was so caught up in the worship of Baal that she was putting to death the true prophets. Now, interestingly, Ahab was a strong and financially prosperous king. So that's the culture of Elijah's day. The people are forsaking God and following idols and the true prophets are hiding in caves. And so what does James do? He goes to the king and he says, there isn't going to be any rain. James provides the background and tells us that he prayed that there would not be rain. In other words, Elijah went to the king and basically said, your economy is about to tank. I have prayed that it would not rain except by my word, your prosperity, your bank account, your world as you know it is about to turn upside down. Their livelihoods were dependent upon rain. So why would he pray that it wouldn't rain? Well, I have a passage on your papers that will give us some background and insight. It's from Deuteronomy. Chapter 11, verse 16 says this, Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Okay, Elijah knew some things. He knew the heart of God and the will of God. He knew that idolatry would kindle up the anger of the Lord. And he knew that the punishment for idolatry was that God would shut up the heavens and not send rain. And you know, there's nothing quite like a famine and having your economy bottom out to get the attention of the people and turn hearts back to God. You see, he didn't pray a humorous prayer before one of their worldly events. He prayed it wouldn't rain. His desire was definitely to get their attention, but his prayer was all about God. He was praying the will of God. He was praying the word of God. Um, one of my favorite books, I've mentioned this before, is... Um, one of my favorite books on prayer, maybe one of my all-time favorites, is Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible. It's probably the book I recommend most because it teaches you how to pray God's word. And um, usually it, it ends up transforming your prayer life and the way you pray. Um, if you don't have time to read the book, you can go to YouTube and, and search his name, Donald Whitney, and you can watch him teach he just takes a church and teaches them through it. I have um, talked about this before, but when my husband became a genuine believer and we began to pray together, I suggested that we pray with an open Bible. And so we got ourselves a prayer notebook and we started to work ourselves through mostly the New Testament letters. 
And we take, generally, we take a chapter at a time. And we will take turns and we will read a few verses and then we take those verses and we turn them into prayers or whatever the heart of God is in that section and turn it into prayers. Um, We usually go back and forth. Whatever the passage is addressing, that becomes our prayer. That becomes our emphasis. We pray it for ourselves. We pray it for our children and their spouses and uh, with the grandchildren. Uh, We also have a list of people They're usually folks that um, have asked us to pray or maybe people that we know that we're concerned about and we'll interject their needs. Sometimes they fit perfectly into a passage, uh, sometimes they don't, and so we just um, interject them. And when the prayer request is answered, we put a star next to the entry. Can I tell you? We have a notebook full of stars just page after page of the kindness of God and his creativity and his faithfulness. God is faithful to his word. Okay, let's go back to 1 Kings and find out how this ends. 1 Kings chapter 18. For three and a half years, It does not rain, and the famine is about to end with a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's a famous story. Elijah is going to gather all the people of the nation together, and they're going to watch a contest. Both sides are going to pray to their gods to send down fire from heaven to light their altars. The prophets of Baal, they're going to put on a hideous display, trying to get the attentions of their gods, and of course, nothing will happen. And then it will be Elijah's turn. And so that's where we're going to pick up. If you can find 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse 36. It says this, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, right now watch what he prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. My husband uh, and his family, uh, they've been dealing with some very difficult issues lately. And so this past February, when we had a chance to go visit them, um, one day when the men went to a ball game, my mother-in-law and I decided to use the time to pray together. And uh, sadly, it was the first time we had ever done anything like that. But I got out my Bible and a piece of paper, and I suggested, you know, let's write down very specifically the different needs. And it involved, involved a number of different family members, so we ended up with several pages of what I can only describe to you as hopeless and despairing problems and issues. And um, as we were getting ready to pray, my mother-in-law said, I want to ask for a miracle and that they will acknowledge that God is the one that did it. Her desire was for God to do something that only God could do 
and that he would get the credit for it, the, that the spotlight would be on him. Elijah, he prayed that his people would know, O oh Lord, that you are God and that you have turned their heart back. He said, he prayed that you are God and that you turned their heart back. That's grace. 